And we are back. Welcome to part two of uh, our Pan's Labyrinth episode. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on their patron feed. And we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Uh, We are closing down February with this episode. Uh, That means that... We have by now our uh, patron exclusive uh, episode on the movie Undead already up on the feed. Undead requested by Chas Fisher, the same patron responsible for today's episode for Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, it's a, Did he give motive for either of those? Not really. He he just he said that he wanted to give us a rotten movie but couldn't think of any, so he gave us Pan's Labyrinth. And then when I mentioned I'll that I was it. watching it, he he just said, "I hope that's the Blu-ray." So I guess if anything, it sounds like he appreciates the visual side of it. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear from Chaz after he listens to this episode, and also after he listens to our our patron undead episode. We also have the QVRs, quick video reviews this month, Wolf Walkers on my end, and The Guilty on Alex's end. That's uh, those are requests from Jordan Mans. We have our usual uh, cutting room floor stuff. Alex, there was so much stuff uh, that didn't make it into the final cut of Muppets Most Wanted a couple episodes ago. And uh, as we're recording this, we're in the process of editing the Can't Hardly Wait episode, uh, which mm-hmm. is also massive. So the, the cutting room floor segments, you know, they're always about, you know, seven, eight minutes. Sometimes they go up to like 15 minutes. Uh Always good stuff. Uh, our pre-recording notes. And then uh, this month in February, we are doing kind of like a special stop in the middle of our Roxena uh, journey. We're talking about the WWE movies. WWE uh, Films. Thank you. The studio. Well, I guess the it's important to make that distinction. You don't want them to get confused with any other wrestling-focused studios. <laughs> Yes, the the embarrassment of riches, the plentiful amounts of those that there are. Uh, but yeah, the WWE Films retrospective, just mainly going through the the movies they've made and the people they've conned into. Not conned. I mean, people know what they're getting into, but just <laughs> they got the paid. hilarious amount of money that they've thrown around to have A-listers in there. Um, and then also we'll be doing uh, commentary tracks on one of The Rock's most famous matches and one of John Cena's most famous matches. Uh, the Rock and Triple H from Backlash 2000, and John Cena and the Samoan Bulldozer Umaga from the 2007 Royal Rumble. Uh, so you have that to look forward to. And then, on top of all that, on our Patreon channel, uh, as usual, uh, following every episode, we have a Contrarians After Hours. The spin-off show where we talk about other things that we are watching, playing, reading, listening to, just doing with our lives. So, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? I just recently binged Friends from College on Netflix. It's only fucking, what, 16 episodes or something? Uh, So that, talking about that, my experience with it. It peaks and valleys. Um, I know its reviews weren't too positive, but there were definitely things about it I I enjoyed. It's really funny. Um, but um, Michael Key, see in it? Yeah, Fred Savage, uh, Robin Trubatsky, uh, Academy Award winner Nate Faxton's in it, and it has a ton of like just little uh side characters. 
that you'd be like, oh, that guy, that guy, that guy. Um, is it Eichner? Billy Eichner? Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name? The guy who was on Parks and Rec? Yeah. Uh, the likes to yell. Yes. So I thought that, and like I've seen some of his stand-up, I just thought that was him all the time. His character in this is very reserved, so it took me a little bit to get used to. But yeah, an interesting uh, few days that I spent on that. It was one of those, like the episodes are like 30 minutes each, and it's just classic, you know, junk food TV. You just want to keep going with it. So um, we will, on my end, be discussing Friends from College. Uh, well, Alex, on my end, as we are recording this, we're we're halfway through the month of February. By the time this drops, we'll be closing the month of February. But uh, the Oscars are about, I would say, month and a half away. So I think it's like, you know, towards the end of March. Thus, I find myself in the usual race to watch as many nominated movies as possible before the Oscars. First on the docket, being the Ricardos at the eyes of Tammy Faye. Being the Ricardos, you know, the new Aaron Sorkin movie based on the life of Lucille Ball, which is, you know, I love Lucy. Not starring Deborah Messing. <laughs> no, no, because I guess Nicole Kidman just just wanted another shot. Did you catch Oscar any of that? Like there was like fans that were mad that Deborah Messing didn't get cast. And it's like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm no mathematician, but uh, I'm pretty sure Nicole Kidman is a bigger box office attraction than Deborah Messing. I, I think even Deborah Messing knows that. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem playing uh, Desi Arnaz, J.K. Simmons, uh, supporting character there. All three of them got Oscar nominations. So, and I, I love Sorkin, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. I'm there. That's one. Now, less familiar uh, with the story, with with everything going on, is uh, the second one, uh, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, this one got a Best Actress nomination for Jessica Chastain. And uh, I think it also got Best Makeup nomination. Uh, it's directed by your buddy, Michael Showalter, Alex. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't get a nomination, but still, you know, Michael Showalter directed a movie that got an Oscar nomination for Jessica Chastain. Uh, it also stars Andrew Garfield, Vincent D'Onofrio, the camping himself, if you've watched the Daredevil <laughs> show. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that will be a fun after hours. And... On top of that, all the things that uh, we already told you about. So if any of that sounded interesting, just check out our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Look at our tiers. See if you'd like to contribute and join the Contrarian Supplements. Our tiers start at $1. They go to $10. $1, $3, $5, $10. The more you pay, the more you get, obviously. But just drop a dollar in the bucket. See if you like what we're providing. And if there's something you'd like to see us add, don't be hesitant to throw it our way. We can get on our Twitter, our Patreon. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to see. Uh, to our current patrons, we appreciate y'all helping the machine continue to run. And we'll continue to do what we can to make you feel as though you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> All right, Julio. So patreon.com slash contrarian prime, panslabyrinth.com slash <laughs> awards darling. <laughs> Slash bread. Slash bread. To be clear, Del Toro said this is not Pan, the fawn in the film. I'm curious who made that call to make to change the Spanish title to Pan's Labyrinth, implying that it was the Greek deity Pan. And why why did they get away with it? It sounds like Del Toro had enough clout to make this movie the way he wanted. 
and yeah. then just at the very last second, like when they when he wasn't looking, the studio just like, well, fuck you, we're gonna change the title. What are you gonna do about that? We already printed all the posters. Yeah, and that's one of those things too of like, it's not like. John and Jane Q movie goer know that story to begin with. So right. it's not like they're going to get more ticket sales just off that. I don't know. They just, uh, uh, they market tested the, the word fawn and they're like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> just, it's not hitting with the, the 25 to 35 demographics. So, but everybody likes bread. I mean, for the movie, this is and the subject matter materials. The fact that it made a hundred million dollars or close to is pretty damn impressive. $19 million budget. Again, premiered at Cannes on May 27th of 2006. Uh, it looks like it was released in Spain and Mexico that October. Um, would you consider Guillermo del Toro to be a polarizing filmmaker? It seems like I know... I don't know if I could say polarizing, because it's basically like I know people that love his movies and then people that are just like, not for me. But no one like... I don't know if I've ever heard someone say they think he sucks. <laughs> uh yeah i haven't either i see i consider him polarizing in my personal experience uh, i i kind mm. of uh, alluded to that on our last after hours actually because i i talked about nightmare alley which is his most recent movie and i kind of yeah. i express how it's just big swings big hits big misses when it comes to his filmography and my experience i don't think del toro sucks but i think some of his movies do i really don't like pacific rim I don't like mm-hmm. Crimson Peak, but then I liked Nightmare Alley. I liked uh, Shape of Water. So I don't know. I think that it's, I wouldn't say it's polarizing, but I think that it's one of those filmmakers where you can find yourself loving some of his movies and then absolutely not caring for some of others. Because there's no way that this is a phenomenon that's just exclusive to me. I just think that the movies that you love might be different. You know, like I think that there might be some people that absolutely adore his two Hellboys and his Blade movie, but then they don't care for something like Pan's Labyrinth or Shape of Water. (laughs) You know, they don't like the the artsy stuff, but when he's full on genre, they're like, yeah, this is my Del Toro. Uh, I'm sure Mimic has its fans. (laughs) I've never Mm -hmm. seen it, but I'm sure there's some people that tell you that that's before he sold out. So Julio had seen this twice in the theater uh, upon release, and as was mentioned tonight, was my first viewing of it. Ninety-five uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Julio, obviously, most people were loving it, and I think we're we're both going to be in that class as well. But five percent of these fuckers that sent their shit into <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes were like, "Nah, dog, not for me." What were they saying? Uh, let's start with Gabriel Shanks from Modern Fabulosity. He says, too adult for children and too simplistic for most adults. It ultimately leaves us with some of the prettiest cinematic pictures of the year and nothing more. Wow. Um, okay, clearly too adult for children, but that's okay because it's not a movie made for kids. And as far as too simplistic for most adults, that sounds a little condescending, Mr. Shanks. Uh, yeah, and I also... Fuck off. That guy probably <laughs> thought the artist was amazing. <laughs> the ride level. He's like, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned Goldilocks in Contrary's Corner. Yeah, he's like Goldilocks trying the beds. <laughs> Too soft. Too hard. Just right, the <laughs> artist. Um, Sean O'Connell from Charlotte Weekly says, Del Toro has realized a work of art that's too terrifying and politically motivated for young audience members who should be swept up in Ophelia's royal dreams. 
It's not a kid's movie, Sean O'Connell. Is that Sean O'Connell is in uh, Sean Penn from Walter Mitty? <laughs> Decided to try his, his hand at writing movie reviews. He got tired of taking yes. photos. I would like to think that Sean Penn would be a little more aware of what the movie was trying to do, which was not sweeping up kids into Ophelia's royal dreams. Uh Thomas DeLapa from Boulder Weekly says, A maze of naive politics and gruesome brutality. It's no more about Franco's Spain than a can of Franco-American spaghetti is about Italian food. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess he wanted something more historically accurate. He, he wanted just more of uh, the dictatorship. And finally... Uh, Gene Lowerson from San Diego Metropolitan says, There are lessons to be taken from Pan's Labyrinth. The value of belief, hope, and courage, for example. But the whole is such a dingy downer that despite the fine performances on display, it is impossible to recommend it. Do you think it's impossible to recommend something just because it's a downer? Wouldn't you at least say, like, Hey, it's really good, but just so you know, it's a downer. <laughs> Going with your eyes open. Uh... Yeah, I don't know, especially something like this. My brain's only operating right now in the in with the guise of Pan's Labyrinth, and this is certainly not an impossible to recommend movie. <laughs> it's weird. And yeah, such an odd thing to say. Yeah, I'm sure there are things like extreme examples where you'd be like, I'm not gonna recommend this to anybody. At the same time, you know, I'm not gonna tell someone what they might and might not like, especially a movie like this that has as much to offer as it does. As a very making it about myself review from that that person. Yeah, well, especially because she acknowledges like all the good things in it or some of the good things in it. He's like, there's a lot of good stuff, but you know what? I don't want to recommend it because it's a bummer at the end. Which there's a lot of shit like movies that turn out to be a bummer in the end. Like Blowout, for example. The, <laughs> I was telling you that girl I'm dating, she's like, I gave her some movies to watch and she's, she picked that one because she said it looks the least sad. And I was like, uh... mm, can't spoil the ending, but... <laughs> But if I had and said, well, you shouldn't watch it because the ending said it robs you of watching something awesome. Yeah. But let's let's start there, Alex. Do you think that this is a downer of a movie? No. I think the idea you said, so you think that she dies at the end and what we're seeing is her like, either way, if she's going to heaven, that's what heaven is. That's awesome. Like, I, I don't. So I guess what I should ask is the debate that that's not where she's going to reside. It's just basically her last like the last images of her imagination. Yeah, I think the debate as I understand it is that that none of it is real. That it's just the entire movie is just all the fantasy sequences are her way of coping with the how horrible her life is, the the, the horrible reality that she's surrounded with. So she uses this we're watching her escapism, you know, and at the end when you see the captain when the captain sees her talking to herself, that's like, oh, we're finally seeing someone else see that, you know, she's just not, you know, it's all in her head. And so in the end she dies. And what we're watching is what's going through her mind as she dies. It's not that her soul was transported to another realm, but it's just that, well, this is a girl that just, she's a little girl. And what she thinks in her last moments is that, oh, well, she finally escapes to this fairyland where her her mother's still alive and she's queen and she's a princess and everything's going to be okay, which is really sad. If that's, you know, if you take it that way, it's it's really sad, but I don't think that that makes it a bad movie. Now, personally, 
I mean, I've seen it, like I said, I watched this movie twice in theaters, and then I've seen it a couple other times just at home. And uh, it's funny because when I, the first couple of times I watched it, to me, it was very clear that the fantasy world exists. You know, I remember thinking, I was like, that's the whole point of the movie. I, I felt that the, the fantasy was so elaborate that it would be a shame if you just reduced the movie to, oh, well, that's just all in her head. And I really like the fact that there's actually two worlds coexisting in a way and then you get at the end you get to the end and it's a sad ending in one world but it's a happy ending on the other one and it all balances out then later on i was just a little more open to the idea of like all right well, it's a movie where you can just decide how you read the ending the ending is just mm-hmm. it's up to you you know it's a it's like, a, like i joked in the first corner it's the ending of, of dark knight rises according to you we're like oh maybe he died maybe 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 Alfred is just imagining this final bit at the end. Or, like, you know, at the ending of The Guard. Did he make it out of that explosion at the end? Uh, so you can you can read it, you know, but to me it was like a 50-50. There's not a stronger argument one way or the other. And then I watched it this most recent time. And I think it's just, we always joke that we're, like, more jaded now and the outlook on life. I, I don't consider myself, like, a negative person to begin with but watching it i was like man it's so clear that this is just this is just a poor girl coping with an overbearing reality and it's all in her head and then at the end it's just no she's just dead and it's just the last thing she sees uh and what convinces me is the fact that her mom is the queen i think that that's the most telling detail because it's something that's never referenced. Yeah, in but then the, like in the movie. It's saying that her dad was some fucking old jester. <laughs> well, she said that her dad was a tailor, and for all we know, you know, I mean, we don't know what he looks like, but I don't know. It it's it just seemed a little too uh, too much of wish fulfillment that her mother, who died suddenly, is also reincarnated as the queen. I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody comes up to me and tells me that they believe that the that the whole magic side of it is real. I, I I really, I'm not going to argue against it because I think in the end, the movie is constructed to where you can lean either way. I still believe that. But unlike previous times, now when I watch it, I feel that I lean more towards the, the really sad interpretation of it. Uh, I really hope that that doesn't mean that it's just that I, it's harder for me to believe in like the magic of it all. <laughs> and it's, But it was... I think it's more likely that I just find I just find it that if I read it as a really sad ending, it's a better story. It's a good story no matter what, but I think it's a better story if I just read it as the really sad, like bam, she died. That's, you know, after all of it. That's so nihilistic, man. <laughs> it's not nihilistic because I think that it's I think it's still beautiful that whether it's real or not, she still makes a decision that is very selfless. You know, she makes a decision of not giving her brother up. That decision is real, regardless of what else you you, you think about the the movie. Uh, and I think that that is actually pretty. It's pretty sweet. Like it is the it's a turning point. In the movie that honestly hadn't really hit me until I watched it this time. That uh, because there's so much going on in the movie and so much that's cool and so much that's just you know grabs your attention that the. The conflict, at least for me, the conflict of Ophelia kind of struggling, like just really trying to live in this world of fantasy. And then, you know, that's her arc. Like at the end, 
she chooses reality because choosing fantasy would mean uh, losing her brother. And that moment is amazing, but, you know, all the previous times hasn't really hit me that hard because there was so much other shit going on. Uh, and this time, I really felt it. And maybe just because I focused so much on that scene uh, at that moment, I, I also felt like it was... Uh, like, that's a real happy ending. And then, you know, the, the epilogue is just something that happens in her head. It's really sad, but I think that sometimes, you know, you can be beautiful and sad at the same time. It sounds like you read it the other way, though. Is it, am I right? Like... It's, are you reading it as yes, but I'm not. I don't feel like I have enough passion to really defend it. Uh, <laughs> well, but still, it's just it's just how you felt it. Like was this kind of like whiplash where you were like, like me telling you, hey, <laughs> no, the takeaway know- of this isn't that bullying works. That is not the takeaway of <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth. No, but you know how like we were talking about whiplash, and I told you, you know, people read the ending differently, and you're like, what, really? It, like it never even crossed your mind that that could have been a thing. Was that the same yes, year? That, okay, okay, yeah. When you were saying like this ending is hotly debated, I was like, "Really?" I had a Liz Lemon. What? I was just I was confused by that. Is that egotistical that I watch a movie and I think it's so clear that I don't understand how someone else could interpret it elsewhere? I don't know. No, especially because you just watched it. Like I have years of hearing people talk about this movie, you know, and talk about the That's ending. That's fair. So, yeah, and you know me, I try to believe in virtue and valor and happiness uh in a lot of cases um and but also like i love some movies that are really fucking nihilistic i cream in my jeans every time we talk about the end of terminator 3 and i love that so much because everyone dies that's the brilliance of it um with this i yeah i just thought it was i took it from the the jump like it was a like a um a fantasy movie and this we were really following this tale now, you know, like I called out, there are things to imply otherwise, just like uh, I, I assume the most the loaded gun or the biggest, the most damning evidence against people like me that think it was kind of a happy ending is that shot where Vidal sees her talking to the fawn and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in my head, it's just like, yeah, because she's the chosen one, that type of thing. And then, yeah, the mom being the... Uh, the queen is definitely the the shot of Anne Hathaway at the end of the Dark Knight Rises. I'm just like, ah, okay. Uh, but yeah, but then they showed the, the king and he's like 60 years older than her mom. So it's like, man, she was robbing the grave on this one. Uh, I don't know. It's like the end of Titanic also. It's just like a that shot where, you know. What's ambiguous about it? Well, no, I'm just saying like. But Rose has that dream where she sees everything that she wants to see one last time, like in the Titanic. And that's kind of what this is with Ophelia. She sees everything she wants to and people are clapping for and whatnot. I I don't know. My thought was like with the movie and the way it was painted is that Ophelia deserves to have a happy ending and she deserves to have a happy life. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be on this plane of existence. Whether what she's seeing, what we're seeing, and where she's going is this underworld um, where, you know, she is the reincarnation of the princess or if it's just the afterlife and, you know, her mom was waiting for her there, but she's going to exist in that plane of existence now, That that's awesome. She deserves to have a happy ending. I also understand that not everything does have a happy ending and everything you said makes sense. I'm just telling, recounting my first time mm-hmm. watching it, how how I kind of took in that ending, 
and probably how I would prefer to believe it ends. That being said, I mean, it's a fucking movie about World War II era, which just unfortold horrors and just awful endings for so many people literally around the world that, yeah, that, that could be the case too. It, it's like, um, what's the Roberto Benigni movie? Is it Life is Beautiful? Is that the name of it? Yeah. Yeah. But obviously much different movies, but that whole idea exists there of like we have to make a fantasy to deal with what is really in front of us. Um, yeah, and I think that it works. Uh, the message, or at least if one of the messages of Pan's Labyrinth is that escapism, that you know, fairy tales, fiction can help you cope. Well, that comes through even if Ophelia actually dies at the end, because even in her dying moments, uh, fiction helps her. Yeah, you know, and, and that's you know that's better than if she was just kind of thinking being horrified of how badly everything turned out but instead she clings to a way like a storytelling that gives her a happy ending regardless of what really happened so i think that that's cool anyway um but i guess all this to say that i understand people that would be like man that was devastating and i might not need to watch it again but that's very different. I can just from- see like coming out of a theater with like you and Eddie after watching that. I was like, "Oh man, wasn't that sweet?" You guys are both just like, "What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about?" Uh, but yeah, I could understand somebody saying that this is too sad to watch again. Uh, I don't understand somebody saying that it's so sad that they would never even recommend it to anyone because that yeah, is, fuck that. Yeah, it's like come on, <laughs> at least once. So okay, so now it, this is real talk. How do you feel about Captain Vidal? Sergi Lopez, I believe, is the gentleman's name. Mm-hmm. Um, it it goes a bit too far into like caricature, and it like feels like a composite character of all the bad guys from every World War II movie. Um, he's good though, and I guess that's the thing. It's so over the top, like how evil he is, that one of the best scenes doesn't really stick out the way it should. Where he has that fucking opening scene of Inglorious Bastards with Mercedes, where he like <laughs> knows he knows she's lying and he's just trying to play it cool. That seems like tame because of all this other shit. That's why that was so awesome in Inglorious Bastards, because obviously Christoph Waltz goes on to just be this huge prick, but that was the first we saw of him, and it was like, holy shit, this guy's cold blooded. Uh, whereas we at the, by this point we had already seen um Vidal do so much damage. I don't know. I really like that scene, so I wish it had had more impact than it actually did. But the fact that it, he is so over the top, I was thinking to myself throughout this, I was like, oh, man, I hope he really gets it bad in the end. <laughs> and that is where I can say it pays off. It's That is so awesome. I like. I, I didn't cheer. I said something like, get him, or you done <laughs> fucked up. Because he just, that shot of him walking, and then the camera, like, I think it's on a, a crane. It kind of just goes to this panning out shot and you just see his army's defeated and he's just he's done there's like no fucking way out like even the thing you said of like if he did pull a gun those people would just gun him down they would do what they could to save the baby but yeah um and then he he knows his goose is cooked the way he just like surrenders the baby like it's a fucking briefcase of money it's just (laughs) you know i like the idea that in the end he thinks he's doing the noble thing of like take care of my son and tell <laughs> but then he doesn't even get that they're like don't worry no one's going to even know you exist and he gets shot in the fucking face <laughs> like 
I do mean what I said in the in Contrarian's Corner. The completely over-the-top shot of him beating that dude's face in with a beer bottle mm-hmm. is so tonally inconsistent with the violence of the rest of the movie. All the other violence is disturbingly realistic. It, it really looks like what would happen if you stab someone. It really looks like what happens when you shoot someone. And the opening salvo to be this thing of like... <laughs> Something from, you know, a a cheap horror budget in 1970 where it's like a putty face just getting beaten in. Uh, I'm sure there's something to that that I'm missing, and I'm sure it was done by design by Del Toro. But I just kind of thought that was almost laughable. And then, but then, like, I recoiled and like, oh, fuck, when he got shot in the face. Because, like I said, the eye on his right side (laughs) of the face, like rolls back and then the blood starts coming out of his eye socket and then he just like crumbles and it's that he has that last moment like you know where his brain's alive and he tries to reach for his face and then collapses it's it's fucking brutal so all in all the Vidal character for his over the top and you know bordering on cliche as he goes him getting his comeuppance as bad as he did in the end kind of makes up for that and it makes it feel like an adequate payoff to what we got. There is a bit too much of him, just too much explaining and just blatantly showing that he doesn't care about Ophelia's mother, that he only cares about having a son. You know, all I want's my son. I, I just want a son. Nothing can ruin my son, like that type of thing. <laughs> well, see, I actually think that he has some tiny, tiny shades of gray when it comes to Ophelia's mother. I think he's an asshole. I I think he's a horrible person. And I think that clearly, as he states eventually in the movie, his main priority is that that child needs to survive. Uh, but I I'm glad think, we have on the record that Julio is not a fan of Nazis. Yes, no. <laughs> this this will not be used later to uh, to gotcha me <laughs> ten years from now. Uh, but I think that there are some scenes, and of course you could just be reading them. You could read them as them being completely insincere. But I think there are some moments, brief moments, where he shows some sort of affection towards his wife, at least in the way that I think this type of character would show affection. I mean, he's not obviously not, you know, he's not the guy that's going to come and like <laughs> give her flowers or anything. But, you know, the fact that like when she first arrives and, uh, he forces her to get on the wheelchair, you know? And of mm-hmm. course we know it's because mainly he wants the kid to be okay, you know? But at the same time, the way that he behaves with his wife is different than the way that he behaves with everybody else. Even when he's being an asshole to his wife, it is different than when he's an asshole to other people. And I guess whenever I watch it, I read it as like, there is some sort of feeling that he has towards her, right? Because he has enough power, I think, to where he wouldn't have to put on this charade of having a happy wife (laughs) if he just happened to get this woman pregnant and he just wants the son uh, that's currently inside her you know he can just have her living in the house but without pretending that they're a happy family so i think that this is a horrible person but i think there is just like the bare minimum of humanity that actually makes him more interesting to me and i like that that humanity it's just it goes away as the movie keeps going because then at some point by the time that he tells the doctor that he just cares about the son surviving i think that by then he's just he's all gone you know there's mm-hmm. there's no point but there's i don't know the fact that he 
I mean, he's doing a terrible job, but he seems to be doing. He 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 seems like a very frustrated stepfather when he really wouldn't even have to be. You know what I mean? Like he gets frustrated about Ophelia, which you don't get frustrated if you don't care. So I think that there's there's just something there because again, he's the captain. He's the, he's the boss there, that little village. So he if he doesn't want to deal with the stepdaughter, he doesn't deal with the stepdaughter. But instead, he chooses to be annoyed by the fact that she shows up all dirty and the fact that she's always reading like why is he getting frustrated about all this stuff you know so that makes him a little more human and uh and i just i just love how fucking twisted and ruthless he is i think that if i had to guess i think the reason that that first act of violence that he performs is so over the top is just so Mm -hmm. that one you know they he makes an impression now we know for sure that he's not just it's not just all talk. He he actually he's that brutal. But then you don't have to see it again because you already established it. So mm. I think that maybe Del Toro went that high so that he can just go a little more realistic from then on. It, it, to me, the, the worst part is that after he, it's just that whole sequence is just so cruel because he could have killed the old man, but instead he chooses to kill the old man's son in front of the old man, and then. When they were both innocent. Exactly. And then when they're both innocent, his response is like, you fuckers need to do a better job. <laughs> and then he walks away. <laughs> so it's it's just, I don't know, I like it. it, it you know, I, I would prefer, under normal circumstances, the standard is I would criticize a character that's just like so bad and so over the top bad. But in this case, some, somehow it works. Maybe I've heard some people actually might have been our, our buddies from Filmbusters because they covered this movie a while ago and... uh Surprisingly, at least to me, they were not fans. Like, I mean, they, they oh wow, they thought it was okay. They they were not uh, blown away by it. But somebody made the point that uh, that Vidal is more of a fairy tale villain, whereas like the Fawn is more of a complex character because you never know if you can trust the Fawn. <laughs> so the Fawn is has more shades of gray than Vidal, who's just all bad, like you would expect in a fairy tale. Which I thought was an interesting point. How do you feel about the Fawn, though? Were you suspicious of him during the story, or did you just take him at face value? Um, I mean, it becomes obviously suspicious at the end where he's like, bring me your brother. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like any fairy tale. It's like, uh, well, I mean, old school style fairy tales, like Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland and shit, trusting the wrong people, the Mad Hatter, you know, like trusting the wrong people leads you into troublesome situations. And because they're kids, they can be taken advantage of. They're naive. So from the get-go, yeah, the whole thing, I mean, he's a scary-looking fucker. So it was kind of, it was always a sense of, like, I don't know where this is going, and I don't I don't know if this guy's trustworthy. I don't know if this guy has Ophelia's best interests at heart. And then, like, of course, the big freak-out he has after she breaks the rules. I would have, too, though, man. Two of his fairies got killed. That was, that was fucked up. So I think because what he's trying to do is such a a positive for her, but then he's such a terrifying looking creature. It just adds a really interesting visual and, you know, just psychological appeal to it. And he never does anything like overtly scary. Like obviously the pale man's the scary part, mm-hmm. but he's just like, it's creepy. It's like, I don't know whether it's just like any one of us, a reaction we would have in this situation. I don't know if I should trust you. Yeah. I think that what, what tips the scales a little bit to, uh, for me is that they have that, that brief moment where, uh, Ophelia is telling uh, Mercedes about it, about the fawn, 
And Mercedes just says, oh, well, you know, they, they always say not to trust the fans or something like that. And mm-hmm. I think that that, at least when I was watching it, uh, even, even the first time, you know, that planted the seed of doubt of, oh, so there may be more to him. If you didn't have that scene, I probably would have just gone with it. Because I'm like, all right, that's fine. He looks weird, but <laughs> what is there to be gained by him messing with this little girl? And I guess by the end, you're like, oh, well, he needs the blood of an innocent. Um, I really like the the performance. I was I was talking about this with, uh, with Kelly, with my wife, when we were watching it. Because I seem to remember that Doug Jones played the... I knew that Doug Jones played the pale man. Mm-hmm. And I thought that maybe he played uh, the fawn. And he does. But he doesn't do the voice of the fawn. But the mouth of the fawn moves. You know, like, you can see it. It matches the the dialogue. So, apparently, she was telling me that he learned Spanish. And so he actually did the all the lines as written. But his accent was... You could tell. I mean, you know, he—it sounded like an American dude, or it sounded like an English speaker uh, trying to speak in Spanish. So then they got somebody to dub it, an actual Spanish actor. But I think it's cool. Like I—I've always liked Doug Jones's physicality, and I think it comes through in in the Fawn and in the Pale Man. Dude, the Pale Man's fucking creepy as shit. <laughs> the way he walks. Uh, he yeah, has just his like, hand in front of himself. Yeah, putting his hand out and just the mm-hmm. way he comes up at the end, like swiping at her feet when she's trying to get away and shit. That that whole sequence is just really nerve wracking because you know something's going to go awry. It's you mm-hmm. know introduce it. It's all you know introduce a gun in the first act, got to use it in the third type thing, all in the span of fucking five minutes. It it looks so good. It, that is the thing that I can never fault a Guillermo del Toro movie for, whether I like them or not they always look great. I think that he's a very imaginative storyteller. And uh, here it just happens that the visuals for me match the story, or rather the story matches the visuals. Uh, Did you find yourself, because this is something else that I've heard in different discussions, uh, wishing that there was more of one side of the story than the other? Uh, Because I've heard people that were disappointed, and I think... uh, if I remember correctly, that was the case with the with the filmbusters. That they were disappointed that there wasn't enough of the fantasy side, and they were kind of bored by the the rebels, the rebellion side of the story. And then I've heard people that were like, "Oh, I would have been happy if the movie was just all about the rebels versus Vidal and no fantasy sequences." I found myself pretty happy with how it was all distributed. Yeah, uh, it's a tremendous balance because truth is stranger than fiction type thing. Where like the what we're seeing in the the battle of this war with the uh, you know the rebels and the Francos is like horrific and the torture scenes and shit it's it's like a good war movie that's interspersed with this secondary fantasy movie and mm-hmm. honestly until they cross paths at the end obviously she brings her emotions into the real life aspect of it from these encounters that she has in this fantasy world but none of the other characters are part of that. And so until the end, it really feels like two movies running parallel to each other. And I just love the way they were blended because the war movie stayed interesting. And then when shit was like heating up on that front, it would cut to some kind of sequence that uh, was in this fantasy realm of Ophelia 
doing these three tasks for the fawn to guarantee her immortality. And those would be just like short films in and of themselves. And I I thought the way they blended was tremendous. I guess this is a movie I'm so removed from that. Like I said, I watched it and had just my own experience with it. And then like hearing these things you're saying about it, reminding myself, this movie's 15 years old, 16 years old. um, Mm -hmm. But still at the same time, I guess I just, I was so pleased with it that I didn't really find myself needing to question what was happening and why. Now that you pose it to me, I can kind of articulate it, but it, I thought it was paced well and I enjoyed the mixture of both of them. And even if like there were parts of the, the war aspect that were kind of more dialogue heavy, it was made up for with somewhere down the line. That's just what I felt like early on in this movie. I learned okay, if it feels like a scene's dragging, it's intentional because it's going to pay off somewhere down the line. Um, I didn't have that much, but just the one scene that maybe you could, I don't know, it established that the doctor was working with the rebels, but that scene in like the rebels cave mm-hmm. where the doctor saws that dude's leg off. <laughs> that's probably one scene that if someone told me that served no purpose and you know, that kind of just was boring, I would be like, Oh, Okay. But I enjoyed it. It's actually, I really enjoyed the part where he puts the saw to the guy's leg and the guy mm-hmm. is like, hold on. And then he takes like yes. one less, he takes one less look at his legs together and then he just yep. looks back at the doctor and nods at him. It's so small and mm-hmm. pretty much in the grand scheme superfluous, but it, it's a really, really cool moment. That's what makes it memorable. You're right, because it could just be like, oh, and then he cuts the, the guy's leg and what you remember is the gore. But no, really, what you remember is him asking him for that just that final moment where he can see his leg before mm. it's gone. And that, yeah, I love that. And I, and I would say that this is important because it sets up the the character of the soldier that ends up being captured. So if you don't have this little scene where you see him trying uh, to yes, read the letter... The yeah, then you don't recognize him later when he gets captured and you're not as, you know, you miss out on a little bit of the connection. But here, it's like, oh, it's that guy. And then, of course, when he looks at the doctor, the doctor, you know, they know each other and all that stuff. So I, I think it's it's pretty well set up. And and yeah, I'm like you. I mean, I I don't have an experience here where I find myself wishing that we went back to one story or the other it's like when we're with the with ophelia and all the the magical stuff i'm all in and then when we're with the rebels and vidal i'm all in because i just find both sides very captivating Uh, i was pretty pumped with uh the mercedes vidal showdown when uh she escapes the torture i mean that's you know that's almost fan service and i still i i loved it that she fucks him up mid speech yeah and then she cuts him open and logically i'm like why wouldn't she kill him but at the same time i don't care because i can i can rationalize it and be like she's in the middle of you know she doesn't know what's gonna happen next so she's she knows she has to leave and sometimes you make the wrong decision in the heat of the moment and clearly the wrong decision was leaving him alive <laughs> there but at least she cut his his mouth open so that was good uh i really like that actress she's in another big uh big movie it's uh an Alfonso Cuaron movie Ito Mama Tambien you probably heard of it it's mm-hmm. also a Criterion release I want to say that one also got some Oscar love uh, a few years prior but uh she's one of the main characters in that in that movie and I just remember recognizing her when I saw Pan's Labyrinth just being happy that oh she's there she's she's still like in big movies 
Because sometimes, you know, with, with foreign films that come to America and get some award recognition, you know, it's like the it's harder, I think, sometimes, especially for the cast to make the transition to, you know, usually you don't see them again. Maybe they, they go off and have their own careers, but they never kind of like reappear in mainstream American cinema. And so for me to see uh, her name is, I think it's Maribel Verdu. The mm-hmm. name of Mercedes to see her in two big movies that were not made in the United States but made it to the United States and made it big. That was that was pretty exciting. Uh, she plays a very different character in Itumama Tambien because it's a you know that's more of a contemporary drama, and here she's like back in the 1940s. <laughs> here, she's carrying a knife in her apron, and Itumama Tambien she uh. She's dealing with two horny teenagers on a road trip. So very different uh, tones. All been there. Both both <laughs> situations I think we can all sympathize and relate to. Both ends of the spectrum of the, the human experience. Um so tell me, Alex, because I have I have this question and you this is one of those subject matters that haunts you and me, I guess, by proxy. Um how do you explain? Joked a little bit about this in Contreras Corner, but how do you explain that we didn't get uh, *Pan's Labyrinth* remake, like a, a, you know, in English? Is it just the Del Toro clout? Um, it, that's a really good question. I didn't find myself asking that when I was watching it. That's always something that, uh, like you said, haunts us and comes to mind when dealing with foreign films. Is the American port of this? Uh, I feel if this had <laughs> made more money, if this has made like two hundred fifty million, three hundred million, you know, got up into those fucking uh, untouchables numbers, then maybe there would be more motivation to do it. Uh, you said parasites getting it. I know th- historically, do the the big awards dominant ones get American remakes? Hmm. I mean, somewhat. Okay, I was thinking, you know, just as we were speaking, uh, the vanishing. Like we talked about the vanishing on our patron. Um, you know what's awesome? Two months ago. <laughs> yes. The original vanishing. You know what's not awesome? <laughs> yep. The U.S. vanishing. <laughs> right, b- but it got made, and I don't think. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that the vanishing like broke the bank when it came to. No, no, no. Something. That's what. That's what I'm talking about. I, I'm sorry. So, like, money is a big part of it, and I should have been more specific when I brought up that point about the awards ones. Like, my thought on this has always been, unless it makes like this huge impact monetarily, that's one reason to do it. But then these ones that kind of fly under the radar, but do big, you know, have like an interesting germ of a story. But by the time. Okay, so let me put it this way. By the time mm-hmm. Pan's Labyrinth came and went, everyone who was going to go see it saw it. I don't think someone coming out with that same story, just the fact that it was in English, would have done. it would have done some, but it wouldn't have done enough to justify it because those same people aren't going to go see it again. Something mm-hmm. like The Vanishing, yeah, it was huge it was danish i think it was yeah but it didn't really do anything over here so the idea is some, someone at whatever fucking i don't know new line or paramount or whoever it was was just like we can take this idea and we can bring it here where people aren't familiar with it and you know we'll americanize it and we'll make more money it'll be brilliant so i think these big <laughs> foreign movies 
I it's it's weird because like I said, Par- uh, Parasite did well, and now it's. Well, I, I just looked it up. Uh, so there's a Parasite HBO series, but there's actually an article clarifying. I guess uh, Adam McKay is is one of the people behind it. And very specifically, in bold letters, says Parasite HBO series is not a remake, but is set in the same universe, says Adam McKay. What the oh. fuck does that mean? I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I could speculate, but I don't want to spoil Parasite for you because you haven't seen it yet. I mean, I guess I, my first thought is like, what would you even call it, Parasite? Then I mean, just you know, just say from Boon Joon Ho, because I guess Boon Joon Ho is kind of like involved in it. But I don't know; it doesn't matter. You know, what's a better uh, a better comparison would be uh, the Untouchables, which we brought up in Concerns Corner. Even then, yes the the idea behind that is that movie made over four hundred million dollars. I think almost entirely internationally, like it was a sensation. But mm-hmm. it it didn't do enough to like dominate any type of press circuit or get real real play here in America. Like I think Curtis and I went and saw it at the art house theater. But like in my head, what I'm trying to say makes sense. But these like no, no, no. I, I I get it, I get it. I'm just yeah. being you know, I'm I'm being obtuse just for the sake of uh, making you explain even more. <laughs> no, 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 which I appreciate because it's helping me flush out these things even more it was 20th century fox that thought they could do a better job with the vanishing and they ate shit on that because that movie was <laughs> had a budget of 23 million didn't even make 15 it's real bad man if you're listening to this podcast and you've never seen the 88 vanishing watch that yep stay away from the american one at all costs um funny games another one but it's the same come on fuck you that's like <laughs> It's the exact same movie, just in English. Uh, right, but but still, somebody. I mean, that's, you know, you still need money to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I get what you mean, and that's one of those that, with Michael Haneke in mind, another good example would be um, Amour. No one's going to remake that in English, because it's like, <laughs> it came and it dominated the award circuit, and basically it was in... <laughs> It was accessible in theaters all across the United States, so anyone who was going to see it went and saw it. And that's my thought on Pan's Labyrinth was maybe now, maybe in the the upcoming years, because so much time's gone by that people would be interested in it again. But there, there was no like need in the immediate five years that followed to get an English version of it out the door. It's not Oscar. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is <laughs> most certainly not Oscar. So. The question also is, or the the statement is that now it would be too dangerous to try to do, to try to remake a Guillermo del Toro film after like all he's accomplished. Didn't Shape of Water win Best Picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dominated. Yeah. I said that out loud when we were watching this and my sister looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, no, that, that won. So I don't think we're going to see that. I think there was never really a window into it either anyway, because what do you do? Make a fucking uh, English guy live on a farm during World War Two. There was no battle going on here, so it's like. Well, you have to set it during the American Civil War, I imagine. Oh, if you, God. you know, just just to keep it somewhat, because uh, that's the whole point, right? That the uh, uh, the setting of the whole Vidal thing is that he's fighting rebels within his own country. So yeah, you would be fighting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you make him a 
you make him a confederate asshole and and that's it that's the setting it's like a plantation and i don't know i mean that it it could be done should it be done i I don't think so (laughs) i like that idea i mean i like it and i don't like it i like the idea that anybody everybody that was going to watch pan's labyrinth has already watched it and uh everyone that was going to watch it in the theater went and saw it i don't think everyone that's yeah yeah uh, you know, and I think that the movie is accessible enough that, like, I don't think that it it's one of those movies that would scare people away just because of the subtitles. Like, I would like to think that the amount of people that haven't watched Pan's Labyrinth, you know, the reason that they haven't watched it has nothing to do with oh, but it's a movie in Spanish. Like, I think it's probably more like ah, it doesn't look like my kind of thing, because I think if it looks like your kind of thing, you don't mind subtitles because it's kind of like artsy horror you know i don't know i could be completely misrepresenting genre fans but i think that they're a little more open-minded when it comes to to uh, international cinema uh maybe i'm wrong but i think that the, the way it exists in a way that's already accessible enough mm-hmm. and part of it is just because del toro's name is attached to it he's yeah. he's a big name I guess it's always going to be that burden of being a foreign film of just going to inherently turn some people off. But it's, you know, I, I could see the egotism of uh, American studio thinking that you can. It's easy to replicate something like The Untouchables or The Vanishing, but something like this that's so immersive and you know, those some of the other movies we've touched on so far don't rely as heavily on visuals and like atmosphere and stuff. It, this isn't the kind of movie that you could realistically replicate. It would have to be something completely different. And I think, or if you did try to replicate it, you risk completely falling on your face and just failing. Um, so it's perfect for what it is. Even if it's a Del Toro original, it is. And if you read it as ambiguous or what have you, I think there's plenty of room for discussion that happens in it. But for what this movie wants to be, it's perfect. It's um, it hits all its notes and does so effectively. Uh, yeah, and it's not even like I said, the too sad or too emotional or too you know too much. I I just don't see any of that. I think it just it, it hits the sweet spot. Very good, very 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 good pick, Chaz. I was kind of disappointed in myself. I had never seen this before uh, <laughs> for whatever reason. I thought I had, but not the case. But now case closed. She'll be coming home to the Criterion shelf come uh, July. Nice. Very nice. Uh, I just remember, just I mentioned that I saw it twice in theaters. The second time I watched it, I was, like I said, I was in Peru. I was with my family. Uh, would you believe, Alex, that we went to the last show? It was like, the, I don't know. In Peru, like Monday through Friday, you have 11 p.m. shows. Or at least you did before the pandemic. I don't know what it's like now. But, <laughs> uh, so, you know. It was like a Wednesday night. We went to the 11 o'clock show. The movie was over like around 1 in the morning, probably even a little later than that. But anyway, the movie wasn't over yet, but I knew that it was almost over because I'd seen it before. Uh, I think Ophelia was dying. The blood was like falling down. And the lights in the auditorium came up and the usher walked in pushing his trash can. Wow. I know. It took him a few seconds to realize that there were people in there. We weren't the only ones. I mean, it was us and a few other people in the theater. And then he kind of like turned around and turned the lights off. And I was like, I can't believe this just happened. <laughs> trying to think of a, like a worse moment in a movie for someone to do that. The fucking 
Haley Joel Osment saying, I see dead people. This guy just comes in pushing his trash can. <laughs> Doop to do. Oh, big spill. <laughs> yeah. An A for me. I don't know if I'm going A plus. I think it's really good and I can't put my finger on what keeps it from getting the full Monty from me, but it's excellent. There's really nothing too critical I can say about it. We covered most of the things that either jokingly or semi-seriously I would uh, – not even I would knock it for, but just in like a discussion like this, it would come up and say, yeah, this is my thoughts on that. But it's excellent. Tremendous piece of business. It does get the full Monty from me. Uh, five stars. I think our biggest difference is just how much we appreciate or not appreciate uh, Captain Vidal. Mm-hmm. I, I think that if you – like them as much as I do, you probably would be adding that plus to your grade. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of stuff that you appreciate even more uh, when you rewatch it, little moments. Because the first time, the first couple of times, you're caught up on the, the big set pieces, but it's the little moments like the guy looking at his leg before it's cut off. Uh, I, I've never, I don't remember ever really having a reaction to uh, moments like when uh, Ophelia talks to her brother, talks to her mom's belly. Not when she mm-hmm. reads the story, but later on, it's like, I think the mom's like sleep and uh, Ophelia just goes over and starts whispering. He's like, hey, listen to me. I need you to be good. I need you to stop hurting her. And if you do as I say, I promise you, I'll take you with me to my kingdom or whatever. And I think part of it is that once you know how everything turns out, those moments become even more tragic, more poignant. Yeah. Uh, it, but they're all over the movie, and it's it just it's such a delight to watch. So yeah, five stars for me. Fantastic movie, easily the best thing that Guillermo del Toro has done in my mind. I, I mean, I I think I've mentioned it before. I think at some point we talked on one episode about directors that we just that have us and we'll just watch whatever they make. Yeah, uh, that's what del Toro did with Pan's Labyrinth for me. Like, after I watch Pan's Labyrinth, I'm like, okay, well, now I have to watch everything he makes because I don't know when he's going to do another one like this. And he kind of did with Shape of Water. I don't think Shape of Water is as good as this one, but it was at least the same vibe, and I, I liked it a lot. And it's worth it. Even if he never made anything as good as Pan's Labyrinth, I'm still going to watch everything he makes <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> until he doesn't make anything else. So, he earned it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's That's the one that gets you the... The lifetime subscription. So, yeah, all in, five stars. All right, Julio, we have covered Pan's Labyrinth. What is up next for Contrarians listeners? Up next, you kind of joked about it on Twitter when you were uh, sassing my wife, uh, but I didn't know if you did it because you remembered that we talked about this. Uh, But we're doing – our next two episodes are sports-related uh, our episode 151 is going to be Rotten, the Rotten, according to the Tomato Meter, uh, sports comedy semi-pro, Will Ferrell and basketball. A winning combination, unless you... My personal uh, favorite Will Ferrell movie. Uh, Will Ferrell comedy. Wow. Uh, and then we'll bounce back with a fresh movie, uh, again, according to the Tomato Meter, and that is Brad Pitt's Moneyball. Hell yeah. So two back-to-back sports movies, at the same time, two very different movies. Not just according to their tomato meter scores, but also in pretty much everything else. <laughs> Should be fun. Uh, so you have that to look up to to look forward to in the month of March. 
All right, that is what is on deck. Definitely a, sh- a gear shift from Pan's Labyrinth. But uh, again, Chaz, we appreciate you coming and throwing this on our desk. It was definitely a, a good one, uh, a good discussion as well. So you all know what to look forward to. Uh, we appreciate you all tuning in. Uh, we're going to move it on to Perennial Plugs, where we start off by giving a thanks to the Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, Take Us Home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rodgieser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, and our merch page. Uh, Hans is a very talented artist, and he's also a writer and a podcaster, as I said. You can check all his work on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. You can also reach out to him on Twitter at Mildemonios or email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can ask him for a logo, or you can just tell him how much you like his podcast, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. Or you can just tell him about his fantasy novels. I wouldn't say that he writes with a Guillermo del Toro vibe, but he does write about some grotesque stuff sometimes. Uh, He has a bunch of zombie novels that you should probably check out if you speak Spanish. Uh, Hans, thank you for all your support. And thank you to Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps curate our social media game. Uh, If you haven't already and you're on Facebook, we are too. So give us a like or a follow. Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. We're also on that gram on Instagram at Contrarian Prime. Zoe puts together uh, some exclusive videos for our Facebook account and our Instagram account, interactive graphics, video clips, audio clips, a bunch of good-looking shit that Julio and I couldn't figure out how to do. So, Zoe, we appreciate all that you do for us. We appreciate all that you do for us, the listening public. (laughs) Thank you for once again tuning in to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. I just want you to know I'm really glad you're following me